Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. FOMO is one of those topics that I think is ever so germane. And uh, if anything, during the time of the pandemic, it's become even more prevalent. So what exactly is FOMO and uh, why is it worth even giving a talk on? FOMO is, like a better words, the ongoing concern that others are having a better time than we are, that others are having rewarding experiences from which we're absent. It's a kind of adult version of the same pain we feel in fourth or fifth grade when we find out that somebody's had a birthday party and they haven't invited us. And we feel that throughout the course of our life, don't we? When we see images of friends gathering or we hear that someone in an extended social circle has thrown a barbecue and the word didn't get to us. It's that sense of not being in the inner circle. Originally, it was popularized in 2004, so it's not really a very old acronym. It's been only around for about 17 years. It started out in a satirical piece by a Harvard business magazine writer named Patrick McGinnis, who focused on FOMO is being the concern that other people have more information that we than we do. It was a sense that there's always better information out there that we're not aware of. And in fact, he paired it with another acronym called FOBO, fear of better options. But over time, FOMO certainly took on a more psychologically nuanced dimension along the lines of the apprehension of social exclusion. And because it's now such a broad topic, when I got interested in it and started uh, doing the research, I found that there were not only studies by clinical psychologists and sociologists, but marketing strategists and even advertising agencies had written their own studies on it. Even the famous ad firm J. Walter Thompson did a study on FOMO, which they rather, it was a good, decent study uh, or overview of the concept, but they came up with the rather classic marketing advertising insight that while FOMO is not good for people, that it reduces psychological well-being, it had, in their own words, great potential as a marketing tool. And then they positively mentioned ad campaigns like AT&T's Don't Be Left Behind and Smirnoff's You Had to Be There campaigns. So on one hand, they were saying, yeah, this is actually FOMO, the fear of missing out is actually... Uh, a psychologically unhealthy 
experience and one that's not good to manipulate. But on the other hand, you should manipulate it because it makes for great successful ad campaigns. Now, other clinical psychologists and uh, sociologists like Burke, Marlowe, and Lento did a big study on social network activity, and they found that um, it, FOMO is a direct result of using social media more often, and that it diminishes not only the quality of our connections, but it exacerbates feelings of loneliness and boredom. Another study on motivational, emotional, behavioral uh, uh, issues of fear of missing out found that it has negative impacts on mood and life satisfaction and that it also re reduced self-esteem. So nobody's exactly painting a rosy picture of, of this kind of sense of missing out. And yet at the same time, all these studies show how pervasive it is. Fully 70% of adult millennials attest to regularly experiencing a feeling that they're missing out on life, that other people are doing life better. 65%, two out of every three teens experience FOMO regularly. Uh, even generation X and, you know, as experiences it over 50% of the, of the population there. Um, and in another study, well-being and the fear of missing out during the time of COVID showed that FOMO only grew during the pandemic. Uh, it was worsened because at the beginning, people were spending enormous amount of time following the news. And it turns out the more time we follow the news, the greater the fear that we're missing out on the news. That people who actually watched the news or scrolled the media less had less fear that they were missing important information relating to COVID. But the more people did pursue the news, inversely or ironically, it created an even greater fear that they were missing out an important tidbit or piece of information. So it's one of those classic ironic processes in life where the more we try to address something, the worse we actually feel. And then there was a second issue with the pandemic, that is people came out of and saw other people emerging from the pandemic, it showed the spike in feelings and fears of missing out because people started to assume that, oh, everybody else is going out to parties. Well, that's all I see on social media, Instagram, whatever, but I'm feeling kind of awkward and socially anxious. I don't really know if it's, you know, where to go or, you know, I don't even feel that comfortable right now in social gatherings. So if anything, it was, it both worsened at the beginning of the pandemic and then at the end of the pandemic. So there's a lot of theories of what causes um, FOMO. 
One is the relative deprivation, as I recall, theory, which is the dissatisfaction we feel when we compare our positions in life and what we're doing and what we're feeling internally with the images that other people post and present. In other words, comparing our insides with other people's outsides. So that's relative deprivation. We almost invariably look at images of others and we, we nobody posts images of themselves looking kind of, uh, you know, Wednesday morning and I'm, I'm not feeling it today. People post images of themselves embracing life, confident, happy, and, but we might, while we're looking at those images, feel uh, diminished, lack of motivation, tired, uh, anxious, depressed, whatever, or just, just not having any real negative or positive feelings. But it creates this sense of I'm there's something in me that's not good enough because the images of people I'm seeing outside in the world on social media uh, look confident and happy. So I, again, another vicious cycle, the more time we spend on social media, the worse we feel about ourselves. We go on social media with the idea that we might connect, but actually what happens is we wind up seeing images of individuals that look like they're engaged in life all the time. And then it makes us feel uh, at times diminished when we're not doing anything particularly interesting. Really though, FOMO boils down to unmet social needs. Social connection is one of the most important survival needs for human beings. And by design, human beings experience emotional distress as painful as lack of food, shelter, and safety when we don't feel well connected. Our entire species evolved as so many evolutionary psychologists like Robin Dunbar and Paul McLean uh, pointed out that our species evolved in small clans and that if we weren't well accepted and connected with our clan, we would probably die because being alone through much of human evolution was a death sentence. It was only because our species bonds into mutual affiliation so well that we thrived as a species. We don't run particularly fast. We don't have shells or claws. We don't fly. So our survival was tantamount to our ability to connect. And as McLean, uh, the founder of the triune brain, and one of the most important neuroscientists of the 20th century noted, it's the sense of separation from others that is the single condition that makes being a mammal so painful. And that uh, other famous psychologists, Bowlby, Winnicott, and others postulate, uh, postulated that almost all negative emotions stem from frayed social connections. Matthew Lieberman, um, I would put down a quote by him, said, each of us is born with an attachment system re responsible 
for monitoring our proximity to a caregiver. That means paying attention to how close our caregivers are. And this attachment system sounds an alarm when we lose attention and proximity. This alarm is painful. It's a feeling of emotional distress. So for example, an infant, when the mother is not felt, it starts to cry. And it's, that's an alarm system saying, I'm not well connected. So in the rest of life, as uh, Lieberman says, the price of our species success at connecting with a caregiver, and we generally connect with caregivers for many, many years to survive, it might be up to you know 18 years um, or more, is a lifelong need to be connected Social connections are the are as important to us as food and drink and shelter. Um, so, like loneliness, FOMO is an alarm. The feeling that we're missing out is not a mistake. It's not a sign that we are not evolved, or it's not a sign that we're shallow. It's not a sign that we're not spiritually evolved. Uh, FOMO, like loneliness, is an alarm that we are not connected with others in a way that makes us feel secure and seen. It uses the exact same neural system involved in physical pain. To be specific, that's the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior insula. These are hardwired circuits in the human brain that create feelings of distress and anxiety and discomfort when we feel lonely, uh, socially excluded, not connected. So FOMO is simply a variation on this attachment alarm system. Uh, in many ways, FOMO is the cousin of envy. FOMO is a kind of fear that happens or an anxiety that happens when we lose, we feel not part of the in-crowd, when we feel other people are doing life better. Envy is the anger response to the exact same stimuli. Other people have success, awards, you know, uh, recognition, approval that I don't have. So whereas FOMO views it as my fault that I'm not in the in crowd or uh, going to the cool events, envy is it's their fault. It's unfair that they have all these rewards, but it both are the emotional expression of social exclusion or disconnection. So why do certain people experience FOMO more than others? Which is a, an important question. Even though FOMO is very much part of a universal, ingrained uh, human alarm system that our connections afraid, some people, given the same situation as others, will experience it more or less. And it's essentially uh, due to, um, I, would I would 
suggest early attachment wounds. Those who grow up in insecure attachment systems are more likely to feel a sense of abandonment and disconnection faster than people who grow up in secure attachment systems. An interesting uh, note I read in one of the studies on FOMO is that most people who have it worry that others are doing better than they are, but they don't really have a clear picture or idea of what they're actually missing out on. So while we feel bad about what's going on in our life because we feel other people are doing life better or are somehow at the most interesting gatherings or events and we're not, we don't really have a clue. It's just this pervading sense. And that's very, in an interesting way, that's very similar to core shame, which is uh, an outgrowth of insecure attachments where we believe there's something about me that's unlovable but I don't know what it is. So in many ways, it seems that FOMO is a kind of projection outwards of the sense that there's something at times wrong with me or I'm not doing it right. And I believe that's a factor in why some individuals experience it more pervasively than others. Daishi Kawamoto, who's a important social neuroscientists <clears throat> uh, came to the same conclusion. Uh, I stumbled upon his work and I was like, oh, somebody thinks about this the same way that I do. He noted that for individuals with attachment insecurity that started off in childhood, social exclusion signals a far stronger crisis than insecure individuals. So I felt my view was a little bit validated there. Um, there is goodness. Uh, while FOMO is a very natural system, and it is important that we take it seriously if it's pervasive, because it's telling us, like loneliness, that we're not well connected enough with with communities of people that are supportive, um, the pain of social exclusion can be mitigated. Uh, and there's different strategies for it. Um, one is courtesy of neuropsychology that um, shows us that self-oriented, painful, uh, intrusive thoughts are ventromedial, they're midbrain, uh, but that the brain has an override circuit for social pain. And that's in the lateral regions, eventual lateral prefrontal cortex, and another region, the IFJ. And essentially these regions override or inhibit negative withdrawal emotions. They reorient us to new stimuli so we can look around and look for disconfirming evidence. We can disconnect from looking at social media. We can pay attention to things that are not so painful or disappointing. And we can uh, access memories of times that we did feel well connected with people. So what is, so how do we activate this region? Um, 
the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex. What do we do to switch on the, I don't want to feel social pain of exclusion and I don't want to feel FOMO right now. How do we dim that pain switch, that pain setting a little bit? Well, it turns out that um, the, these regions are activated when we slow down when we're busy and we're moving fast, if we suddenly stop and become quiet and we disengage from uh, the stimuli we've been paying attention to, that actually switches on this region. And to me, that sounded very, very suspiciously similar to meditating, where we come to a stop, we disconnect, and we relax into our body and we disengage from all of the triggers and sensations around us. And then I looked it up and guess what? That's accurate. Um, it turns out that meditation actually disengages self-oriented, repetitive, intrusive ideations and activates ventral lateral task positive processing where we don't feel as bad about being disconnected. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture that if we just meditate, we won't feel lonely, bored, or uh, excluded from the big parties of life. In fact, there's a famous uh, sutta by the Buddha that uh, was one of the first teachings I heard on a retreat, the first retreat I did with a uh, Buddhist renunciate uh, like 17 years ago. Um, I had only done retreats with American teachers and finally there was a, uh, an actual Buddhist monk who visited and he, he at the beginning of this retreat, that was held in New York, and it was during a beautiful, beautiful four-day stretch. Uh, the first day of spring it was like in, I don't know, May, and everybody was outside, and the city had come alive, and, you know, there was a lot of signs of life, and we were all indoors, <laughs> missing out on, like, the first really beautiful day of the year. And the teacher... Uh, Ajahn Suchito told us the Sutta of the Vajiputta, which is essentially goes like this. There's, on one evening, a Buddhist monk is meditating alone in a forest near the, the city of Vesali, which is a big city in, um, at the time, uh, very important metropolis. And on this occasion, an all-night festival was being held below. The city was very raucous, and there were the sounds of music described in the sutta. And the monk feels really sad for himself. He really feels like he's missing out on something that could be so joyous and fun. He hears the laughter, and he thinks to himself, I live alone in this wilderness like he says, like a log cast uh, away. Uh, and on a night like this, who could possibly be more unhappy than me? Who could possibly be more miserable? And it just so happens that hearing this, a, a spirit nearby, what they call deva, a spirit hears this 
monk lamenting that he's missing out on all the fun and joy of life and the spirit floats to him and says you know yes you are alone in the wilderness while while others are partying and socializing in the city below but those people actually envy you because they might very well be living in a realm of unquiet unhappy minds whereas you're here working on inner peace learning how to quiet your mind learning how to achieve lasting serenity so in that teaching which is a very common teaching to tell people at the beginning of a retreat the idea is that really what all human beings are after in many ways not only is feeling connected but also feeling inner peace and that very often the kinds of connections that we see on facebook or you know instagram or uh any other social media app is is or the so the dating apps is not really the kind of connections that make us feel fulfilled so it's a reflection on that the buddha doesn't say himself that the answer is being peaceful alone far from it there's a famous teaching where ananda comes up to the buddha and says um is it not true that half of the holy life is admirable friends and companions and the buddha says don't say that it's not half of the holy life it's the entirety of the holy life if you don't have admirable friends then how can you be expected to have the strength and confidence to pursue true liberation so the buddhist path is not about learning how to be without others or learning how to be happy alone despite the myth the buddhist path is about finding the right spiritual companions the right community or the right people that we can turn to to disclose our feelings and emotions and thus feel a deeper more lasting sense of connection so you know as a buddhist pastor i have a lot of uh i get to connect with people on a lot on really authentic levels people don't call me up and talk about you know tv shows very often or um not that there's anything wrong with that but i generally when i talk with the different people i offer counseling it's on really important authentic real feelings uh that are sometimes positive sometimes negative but always uh, there's a deep sense of this really matters to me and so in my life i don't i don't really feel that i'm missing out even though i'm not a person who goes out ever to parties or shows maybe i'll go to a uh a uh a, a concert now and then i haven't been to one in 2 years but i would love to but i'm not a social person in the sense that i'm not go going out there and partying i don't drink i'm not a drug user i've been sober for many years and i just don't uh i don't feel any need to connect with people in large groups cuz the connections i have are deeply sustaining 
So the Buddhist solution is not reaching the state where we're outside of the social world, but rather we're in true deep connections with people where we're maximizing the time when we're with people to really disclose what's going on with us internally rather than talking about uh, things that are just meant to pass the time or that are just fun to talk about. That is, for me, the single most powerful way to alleviate the feelings of missing out or social exclusion. Lastly, in the Buddhist uh, canon, when people experience social exclusion, uh, rather uh, paradoxically, the teaching is to practice what's called mudita, which is... um, Reflecting that true happiness is not a zero-sum game. It's not like there's a limit to it. And so if other people are happy, it's not coming at our expense in any way. And so if we actively practice being happy for other people's joy and feelings of connection and for their happiness, what we do at that very same moment is we experience a sense of joy and a sense of worthiness, and we no longer feel that sense of I'm missing out as much. The Dalai Lama said that if the only way we can feel happy is when good things happen to us, that makes our chances of happiness one out of six billion, because that's how many people there are on this planet, roughly, maybe seven billion now. But if we can experience happiness when other people experience true happiness, then our chances of feeling content in this life go up dramatically. Maybe they go up by a factor of six billion. So anyway, I'm going to stop there. That was some rambling thoughts on FOMO and uh, trying to naturalize it trying to reduce the sense that there's something wrong about it, trying to present uh, insights into it and ways to address it, not just by pausing, slowing down, engaging ventral lateral thinking, but also through reflecting on the kind of connections that really are lasting, that really give provide us with a sense of deeper bonds that protect us from that sense that we're missing out on life. And also with the practice of appreciation for others' happiness. So with that, let's uh, meditate, find a comfortable seated position, So uh, closing the eyes and uh, well, just reminding you that if you would like to support 
this uh, my work. It's uh, DPX NYC, Dharma Punks NYC, I should say, Dharma Punks NYC uh, at Venmo. So thanks for that. I, everything I do is supported by donations only. And uh, so finding a space in your body where you can feel the breathing. I like to very often either do the belly or the heart center and just bring my attention to those areas and try to help the sense of the inhalation filling up those regions. So with my belly, it's a sense of the abdomen expanding. Or the heart center as well, the lift and widening of the chest cavity just really breathe, bringing in a sense of emphasizing the sensations of inhalation in an area in the front of your body. And then couple that really full in-breath with a very long, unforced exhalation. It's very important in meditation not to fall into the habit of pushing out the exhalation, pushing out the breath, but just releasing it very slowly. The longer the exhalations, the more we engage both parasympathetic nervous system, which relaxes the autonomic nervous system, stems the release of stress hormones, engages social processing in the brain, and also it's the switch that turns on lateral thinking that gets us out of painful, what's wrong with me, thinking it stops that process of it stops the process of self-centered ideations. It starts reducing the hormones that underlie anxiety disorders. So the very simple act of the full in-breath and the very long extended out-breath is probably the most powerful tool at our disposal to regulate our state of being. Trying to make this breath as comfortable and soothing as possible. Mm. 
And see if you can really inhabit the area you're breathing into from the inside out. So you're not viewing the breathing of the body from above, like you're perched on your shoulders, that your consciousness is behind your eyes, between your ears, but you're expanding your sense of awareness down into the body. So your awareness is no longer disconnected from the body, but it's inhabiting the body, almost like you're in an elevator that's going down into the basement, to the cavernous realms beneath the the floors above ground, we can think of as our head. We're now going into that body that we so often forget and just being up close to the experience of breathing. And if you get to a, a time where or feeling that the there's a sense of ease somewhere or comfort or pleasure somewhere in the body, just find that area and use the rhythm of the breath to expand it through the body. So for some, it might even be, we begin to notice while breathing that the palms of one hand, the palm of one hand feels really relaxed and comfortable. So we bring our attention there. And while we're breathing in, we sort of expand that ease past the palm into the wrist, into the fingers. And then as we breathe out, we just relax everything around that peacefulness. And then when we breathe in, we continue to expand the ease and pleasure. And if you don't find a really comfortable area of your body, just, and if you don't want to continue focusing on the sensations of the breath, just allow yourself just to relax and just scan the environment around you for sounds. Just try to bring your awareness beyond the narrow confines of your head like you're expanding the mind outwards so that every sound in the world around you is happening in your mind.
So now on to the reflections suggested in the early Buddhist teachings about uh, changing the way we experience our relationships with others, our social world. To start, let's just bring to mind any individual with whom we feel really well connected or someone who we feel we can disclose our internal experience without any deep fear of judgment or shaming or criticism, just someone available who we can truly be ourselves with. If right now that's a difficult person to envision, just envision someone that could provide those needs. But activating the, through imagery, activating the sense of what it's like to feel really connected in a meaningful way. So a real positive image of someone who embodies the attributes of connection.
And now to bring online our compassion and caring for the well-being of others and ourselves. Visualize someone that you care about who is going through a difficult time. Someone who is struggling just to bring about um, a sense of recognizing and caring about the suffering that is so endemic to much of or part of the human experience. As the Buddha said, in all lives there will be painful, traumatic events. So bringing to mind someone who could use support. And then a phrase of compassion. I care about you, I care about your suffering. Or just the simple phrase, I love you, keep going. Connecting with that sense of care for the internal experience that others struggle with. I love you, keep going. I care about you, I care about your suffering. And then switching the image to ourselves, representing an image representing a time in life we felt lonely, disconnected, whether that was 30 years ago or yesterday, just an image that pops into your mind of a period in your life where you felt left out excluded, not important to others, and just wishing this part of ourselves that still holds those memories, just extending the same compassion. I see you, I care about your suffering. I love you, keep going.
And lastly, bring to mind someone who's experiencing a lot of success, someone who seems to be really enjoying life or embodies that sense of that they're really uh, in the inner circle, someone who's getting a lot of attention. If it's someone you know, that might be better, but if it's not someone you know, just someone who really embodies that sense of being in the know. Someone who seems confident, someone who appears to have a lot of conviction, someone who seems to be embodying some of the capabilities or states that we wish for ourselves. And if any image comes up, just send them well wishes. May you be happy. May you enjoy your happiness. May you enjoy your well-being. May you be happy. And what we're doing is removing any sense that their happiness and well-being comes at the expense of ours. May you be happy. So at this point, I'm going to ring the uh, bow, thanking you for your practice. Just take your time when you hear the sound. There's no rush to leave whatever state you've achieved to slowly rebalance your attention to both awareness of how you feel internally, as well as some awareness of the world around you.